Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Smith & Jones, live right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan, and, of course, on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast. Download, subscribe, rate, review, and share. Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise, make sure you dialed into Smith & Jones. And we are going to dive right into the show this week. In fact, we had this conversation just a little bit earlier. And why? Well, because the guy that we are about to speak to, well, again, we already did speak with him, He's going to work right now, kind of toe-to-toe against our show. So as you're maybe watching the Celtics and Sixers and Boston with their, you know, cliched back against the wall, you can also tune in to the show and listen in to the radio play-by-play voice of the Boston Celtics, Sean Grandy. Sean, let's go back to Game 5 and, and kind of dig in a little bit, I guess, as, as, as much as maybe Celtics fans don't necessarily want to. Um, Jason Tatum said after the game, we just didn't have it. Uh, Jalen Brown saying we've got to have a short-term memory. Um, Joe Mazzulla saying that was really our first bad game of the playoffs. It just came at the wrong time. I, I mean, I don't know what else to say other than, yeah, all three of those guys are right, but facing that 3-2 hole now and facing elimination, what's the mindset you think of going into game six, let alone trying to have that short-term memory and wipe out what was otherwise a pretty rough game five? Well, I think Celtics fans are concerned by some of the language that you just, they don't want to hear anymore. Oh, we let one get away and we weren't. The the urgency has not matched the skill level the last couple of years for the Celtics in these games. And they've had moments of it. They've had flashes of it. And it's all part of learning to win is the valuing of every possession. And I think, you know, Celtics fans could have lived with or died with a night in which you make the right plays, you play hard, but, man, you just have one of those three-point shooting nights where they don't fall. Or you did have a phenomenal performance in the Sixers in an MVP game from the MVP. But it, it left everybody dumbfounded that the Celtics didn't seem prepared to play and prepared to bring the urgency that you must bring in a game where your season's on the line. When, yeah, you had been the better team in the series easily for the first four games, but you cannot both give away the close games and – then lay an egg. You can't do both of those things. And now, in theory, they're in the same spot that they were in last year. It just doesn't, you know, going into tonight, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't mean that another extraordinary moment in the legacy of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown of the Celtics isn't about to unfold in front of us. It just means it doesn't feel the same. If you go back to Game 5, yeah, they lost Game 5 at home to Milwaukee, and they lost Game 6 at home to Miami last year. So they were in the same spot. But Against Milwaukee, Bobby Portis stole an offensive rebound, and Drew Holiday hit a big shot, and the Bucks squeaked that game out. Jimmy Butler had the game of a lifetime in Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Finals last year, duplicating what LeBron had done 10 years earlier in Boston, and those were you know, sort of epic moments for those two franchises. The Game, game 5 was a great performance for the Sixers, but it was the Celtics laying an egg when it mattered the most, and given the, the sort of fragile psyche, it would seem, that's what I think was really jarring for fans who don't have as much. I mean, you know, Celtic fans will psych themselves up for tonight, but psychologically they can't be as confident as they were a year ago. Sean, you know both men that lead, the, lead these teams, their respective teams. I heard one um, pundit, one, you know, analyst, expert, whatever tag you want to put on uh, them nationally say that right now, Doc Rivers is coaching circles around Joe Mazzulla. And I, I mean, the, the next question, 
and you know maybe it comes after game six tonight for for boston is the honest question is this a failure but evaluate what's going and you sit beside a guy who's a finals mvp in cedric maxwell evaluate what's going on in the chess match between doc and joe Missoula and are joe's colors as a first year coach head coach i mean he was in this situation last year but he was in the passenger seat. Is that showing through? Is inexperience showing through in, in that context? I think it's an easy, obvious talking point, and that, by the way, doesn't make it wrong. It's, you know, certainly you have an inexperienced head coach. That's possible. But in that situation, Doc has been down this road many times, and he's had more – listen, he's had – has he made more adjustments? Yes. He's had more adjustments to make because going into game five – the Celtics had outscored Philadelphia by 41 points through the first four games. You've been around long enough to know when you outscore a team by 41 points over four games, you're usually up 3-1 at least, if not having the series swept. For an example, of the last three years in the first round, the Celtics outscored Brooklyn by 30 last year. They had outscored Indiana by 40 in 2019, and they they outscored the Sixers, the Nets by 20, and the Sixers by 30 in the first round. Those were all four-game sweeps. And so they outscored the Sixers by 41, more than that, through the first four games, and they lost the close games. I I think when I I hear a coach is doing this and a coach is doing that, I think about the staff, too. Doc Rivers is obviously going to the Hall of Fame as coach. He also has head coaches on his staff and Dave Yeager and Sam Cassell as the head coach in waiting. You have Jamie Young, who has been on the Celtic staff for years and years. It's a far more experienced staff. Not only did Joe Mazzulla get what Celtics owners call the battlefield promotion, right, to head coach just days before training camp was about to begin. Not only that, you lost D.B. Adoka. You lost Will Hardy, and it wasn't the most experienced coaching staff to begin with, and then Damon Stoudemire left in the middle of the year. So it's a very young, inexperienced coaching staff by comparison. So when Jason Tatum goes into the play too late, as he did at the end of Game 4, when things like that happen that are normally player mistakes, this season in so many ways, guys, was just teed up. The pattern has been pretty clear. When the Celtics play well, it's the players. And when something goes wrong, it's Joe Mazzulla's fault. And we know that's not really how the NBA works. That said... I mean, looking back 10 years from now, is Joe Mazzulla going to say, there's probably things I know now that I wish I had known then? Sure, he will, because every coach says that in their 10th year, things they didn't know about their first year. Sean, let me, let me jump back then, kind of piggybacking on, on what you just said there, but jump back to earlier in your, in your answer when you were talking about um, the total you know, amount of points the scored in the series thus far and how historically that has been in Boston's favor. Taking that and then looking at this series, if not for the heroics of James Harden in one, if not at least two yep. games, it might have been a sweep, or it very easily could have, should have, would have been a 3-1 series lead. So, as much as you're down 3-2 and facing elimination, if the team gets bounced tonight, then it, this is all for naught. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's just fodder. But is there any sense of optimism that things could have, would have, should have been in a better position than what they are right now? Oh, of course it should have been. But nobody – I think there is – in Boston, the Boston perspective and the Nationals perspective, obviously, are two very different things. I think you're talking about this is a legacy weekend for Joel Embiid and particularly for James Harden. 
it's very clear now that, you know, in my view, the Sixers and the Celtics are the two best teams left. And the winner of the series is going to win the championship and is going to have home court and all those things. Listen, with the health of those guys, you just can't necessarily depend. Is Joel Embiid going to be completely healthy? There's things we don't know that are still about to happen. But, uh, you know, I think Celtic fans just assumed, here's what I say about Boston when Boston people aren't listening, which, of course, they always are. But it's this, uh, you know, it's been 20 years here of nine Super Bowls, four World Series, all wins, three trips to the NBA Finals with a win, three trips to the Stanley Cup Finals with a win. So the things like what happened on you know, with the Bruins losing in Game 7 and if the Celtics go out tonight or go out in the Game 7 in the quote-unquote second round when we know this is really the Eastern Conference Finals disguised as a second-round series, if that does happen, the expectations here were set so outrageously and ridiculously high to begin with that it was just going to be impossible to succeed. So I, I don't know the answer to how people are going to perceive it if it's all said and done, if it is for not. And should there be optimism? Here's the reason there should be optimism. Because, yeah, going back to your question, what you're asking, the Celtics do have better talent. I just think that people have generally dramatically underrated the Sixers and the year that they have had, in which they were the third-best team all year. And suddenly here the narrative, because Boston was quote-unquote supposed to win and because they went to the finals, this was supposed to somehow be an easy series. And just looking past the 82-game body of work, which on the one hand, guys, has never lied to us more than it has this year. On the other hand, there's still so many things you can glean from it. Take the Lakers, for example. The Lakers were the second-best team over the last 30 games of the year, and everyone is treating us like a shock that they're suddenly playing, continuing it in the playoffs. So the regular season will tell you more than you think, and the Sixers are really, really good. They're a championship-caliber team, and a month from now they may, be, they may make my point. Uh, you know, Sean, when you, when you, you think about that, uh, that, that peels back a couple of layers to me. One explaining to the fans and we know this we say this all the time it's not linear just because you get to the finals one year doesn't mean that a you're going to get back and b you're going to win the next year i mean they're a different franchise but golden state went from you know losing in a play-in game to winning the championship next year so it's it's not linear and the other part of that is you know what's the what's the outcry going to be Uh, because you're right at one point in the regular season, the Celtics and, and the Sixers were, you know, within a game or a, a half a game fighting for second. But but how does the fan base, especially the Boston fan base, how do they take this if it doesn't turn out the right way? Not well is the short <laughs> answer to that. They they and they're not going to take they're not going to take anything well uh, because they expected to win. They were whipped up into a frenzy. They think it is linear, um, and you have. You know, young, you've got to stop. Tra- and by the way, it's fair. Listen, if we're going to this game tonight, and that's funny because a year ago, going into game six, Jason Tatum hadn't been very good in the Milwaukee series. And he has not been very good in this series. Of uh, that, there is little question. But obviously, he added to his legacy and helped create part of his legacy in the game six at Milwaukee last year. And now he's put himself in a position that he's going to have to do it again tonight to keep this series alive. But uh, I, I don't think you have to somehow separate yourself from fan reaction to yes. 
in, in a bizarre scenario here where, uh, you know what they what fans don't realize, what Boston fans don't realize is how the other half lives. When, let's say it's been, I don't know, 20 years since the team got out of the first round of the playoffs, that's a legacy franchise, that's an original six franchise. Here, when you have so much success, as I was just talking about, for so many years, it isn't like it's been a good four- or five-year run in Boston. It's been a 20-plus-year run, which means, think about this, guys. If you're under the age, the same age of people that don't remember the Leafs playing in the second round, that's the same people that don't really remember what it was genuinely like to be a normal fan in Boston because you just become – I'll give you – here's the – I'll do it, try to do it in 30 seconds. The example of what I'm talking about here are the expectations. When I came back to Boston from Minnesota, my first year was 2002. The Celtics had missed the playoffs six years in a row. And they ended up going to the Eastern Conference Finals that year in a surprise run. And people in Boston wanted to have a parade for that team that went to the Conference Finals. In fact, there was such a helplessness. There was a parade in Boston for a player who won a championship on another team. They had a parade for Ray Bork when he won the Stanley Cup in Colorado because it had been so long since there was something to celebrate. Flash forward now to the years where the Celtics are going to the conference finals every year, and when they lose in the conference finals, as one of the three or four best teams in the league out of 30, there's a lot of people here that kind of spit on that. Conference finals. We're about championships here. Well, that's great. And I hope that your life is going that well in your real life and your kids are getting A's in school and everything is going perfectly, that being third or fourth out of 30 is a problem for you. But it does take some of the enjoyment out of it. I think for fans who don't get to appreciate, what do you think, how long do you think it'll be, guys, before Bruins fans can enjoy a regular season again? Because Mm -hmm. any good thing that happens now for the Bruins, just going to look back at this. I tried. I remember saying to Bruins fans or whatever, before the playoffs start here, I know it's only a few days, try to take a second to appreciate what just happened. And you had one of the greatest regular seasons. I'm old enough to still kind of like, uh, do a little old man get off my lawn about getting the point for an overtime loss because, uh, you know, I grew up at a time when men were men, and if you lost, you lost. You didn't get a point. But nevertheless, it was an incredible regular season. And it was, listen, I, I, grew, listen, I grew up a Ranger fan, so I was, I grew up in 1940 being shouted at me, you know, my entire childhood life. So winning was, winning was special, and it was precious to get that far. And now... The, the good of it is the Celtics and the Bruins and the Red Sox and the Patriots have this amazing success. The bad news is if you're under the age of 35, you don't remember what it's like to be a real sportsman. Hey, Sean, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the same thing I did on my last question. I'm going to take this based on everything you just said. I'm, I'm sitting back listening. And this, is, this is why I love the long-form conversation sometimes because here yes. we are getting set for a playoff game. And I'm going to talk non-basketball for a second. Like, like Jonesy, reel me in if I go too far down the path here. I'm going to get on my soapbox. We're all fathers. Uh, Jonesy's a former educator as well. And I bring this up because I'm sitting there listening to you, Sean, and I'm thinking this applies, obviously, you just talked about to Boston fans and to sports fans in general. And listen, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a long-suffering Buffalo Bills fan still waiting for that Super Bowl after being there for four straight and then being teased the last couple of years with a team that seemed like they were right on the brink. But the reason I bring this up, Sean, I think about Toronto and the Raptor fan base. Like, the Raptors have now fired two Coach of the Year winners in less than a decade. They are only four years removed from a championship. And following their championship, they were that close against the Celtics to maybe making it to the conference finals without Kawhi Leonard. They followed that up 
with a year that's a forgotten year, a lost year for them, where they were down in a in a in another country for an entire season, and then bounce back the very next year into the playoffs, then miss the postseason this year. And most Raptor fans will say this team's terrible. They're going nowhere. They're on a treadmill, or they're just spiraling downward. Now we don't have a coach, and there's no future, and there's no hope. And who cares about the championship? It's that generational instant gratification that that folks seem to have, and it seems like, and, I, and I'm sounding like the old man now, where it's like, if you don't win a title, it's all been a failure. And you can't well, find joy in the process or in the incremental wins or, or bonuses or increases that come along the path to hopefully eventually winning. Uh, let me jump in here, Sean. I, and, and let me jump in here. And Eric has it right because... Sean, this year, the same way you talk about Celtics fans, some of the young people that work in our industry, you know, right wet behind the ears, right out of broadcast college, and, you know, they, the Raptors are a few games under 500, and they, they are looking like, wow, what's going on here? And Eric and I look at each other and say, hey, man, we saw a 22 and 60. Like, like, yeah. like you said, being a real sports fan and – the, the, you know, the fact that people get spoiled by it all is something that you, as Eric said, we really need to reel that in. If in our, with what we do, if you don't love game 13 on December 5th in Charlotte, you're in the wrong business, right? Because that's, that's the magic of it to me growing up as a sports fan. And I'm not, the easy thing to do is to say, oh, these talking head shows and, you know, what we're doing now at Sports Talk Radio and things like that. But that's, listen, that's show business. And I think we have to, you know, there's no, there's no ratings in having a rational conversation about life and fatherhood and teaching your son that you can't win every night. And maybe some of this is because I am scarred because I talked at the start about all the home losses, those home playoff losses that the Celtics have had. I think my son, who just turned 11, was in every one of them. So I had a crying kid. I was walking home from those games, right? And that's like real life. That And you try to manage expectations as much as you can, but you have to love, you know, you got to love the game. I, I think, listen, the talking head shows are great. They make the game bigger. They, they generate interest, all that stuff. But it's always, you don't drive ratings by coming on today talking about how great the Sixers were last night. The story is this epic collapse of the Boston Celtics and what's going to happen in the franchise and the coach doesn't know what he's doing because that's all, that's what that industry, part of the industry is about. And I get it, and it's all fine, and the show business, and it's great. But you would like to see just more love of the game because I think there's this general thing that, well, if you don't worry about championships and everything else, is that's just soft. Well, that's not real life and in real life is a lot more losing than there is winning and having loyalty to a franchise and cheering for a team through and being with them telling the story of a team that's why i've always stayed doing the celtics or a local team you know there's always chances to do national stuff but the, the romance of my job and the beauty of my job and yours is telling the story of a team from the first day of training camp until the final day of the regular season to the playoffs, however far it goes. And that, to me, is what I grew up watching and loving as a fan of, of my New York team, suffering through it, 
it's what you know. I hope Leaf fans are doing, and even being down 3-0, the fact that you're finally in the second round and you're seeing things you never got to see. I hope there's there's joy in that, even if it doesn't. This round does not go well, and so you do have to ask yourself at some point, what are we doing here? And if you're just going to be miserable, if you don't win the championship, because by my math, and I was told there would be no math, but you're only going to win the championship once every 30 years. So, <laughs> what are what are we doing here? If not, you know, there are worse things in the world. We're here for the escape from. You know, we, we stayed the sports as adults and didn't get real jobs because we decided that this world is the way the world should be. This is what real life should be. And that, to me, is the is the shame of it. And <laughs> if the Celtics go and win this game they're about to play tonight, there's a seventh game in Boston, there's going to be a frenzy if the Celtics somehow survive this against the second straight year and go to the conference finals and win the championship. All this stuff will be forgotten. But, uh, you know, I said to Doc... Doc and I had dinner last week, and I said, don't make my son cry. And when I saw him, he's like, oh, you're not rooting for me now. I said, just don't make my son cry. And when he did, he said to me the other day, and he was half kidding in the way he always says, he's like, well, it's good for him, you know, to learn what real life is like. And he was joking when he said it, but the more I thought about it, I'm like, well, <laughs> maybe he's right. And yeah. so, you know, that's, that's where we are. But to me, I'm about to call a game that is a potential generational game in the NBA of – is it Joel Embiid? Is it James Harden's time, or did his time pass? And it's Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum's time to, you know, move into legendary status and win the kind of games that you have to win to win championships. And those are the stories that we're outrageously fortunate to get to tell. Sean, last one for me, for both of us, I think. Based on that, maybe this isn't even fair to ask, but I'm, get out that crystal ball if you can. Win or lose tonight, win or lose the series if they happen to win, um, heck, win or lose the championship if they make it that far. How much does this sort of moment in time that you were just talking about impact minor or major what Boston does this off season, looking ahead to future seasons in terms of a tweak needed or an overhaul needed or an addition needed? Like, like, can you run back? Even if you were bounced tonight, can you run it back with the same squad next year with the same core? Like, how much do you think, uh, you know, the management and ownership is looking at this saying, this is make or break in terms of the decision-making we have to do going forward? Well, hopefully, if it goes badly for the Celtics tonight or Sunday, there is a cooling-off period where you got to take a deeper what, deeper view of the whole thing. What This year for the Celtics, they made the tweaks. They made all the moves. Other general managers, other front offices were sort of in awe of what Brad, you know, pains me to say something nice about Brad Stevens, but he's killing it in this job. And this summer, you add the two things that you felt you needed that the Celtics, where they felt short was scoring off the bench. And you added Brogdon and Gallinari without giving up a significant piece of what you had. And people were in awe of that. And then, so the Celtics were the clear-cut favorites in August, and then you had three things happen almost seemingly the same day, although they were several weeks apart. Gallinari tears his ACL. It's like Edwin Diaz in the World Baseball Classic. Gallinari tears his ACL playing international basketball, and he's gone for the year. That's a key piece that you needed. Nobody mentions that. Nobody talks about Gallinari. Ask Doc Rivers about Gallinari because he had him in L.A. Significant addition. Malcolm Brogdon's the sixth man of the year, and you added him, and then you uh, – the day before training camp, so then Rob Williams gets hurt, and that was significant in that, yeah, he came back, but would his role have been different? 
had he played the whole year. The Celtics' best lineup last year had Al Horford at the power forward and Rob at the center because Derek White had such an amazing year. Rob never really got back in the starting lineup. Did that change it? And, of course, a, a dramatic, unforeseeable coaching change on the eve of training camp. And suddenly, everybody come, was off the Celtics. They were off the bandwagon. And what, what happened? The Celtics had the best body of work anyway. They led the league in net rating and scoring differential, and they finished the game behind Milwaukee. That hit them. And maybe they're, they're hitting now in the playoffs. So I think you've got to step back and say, how could you have handled the coaching situation any different? I said, what did I say a few minutes ago? Battlefield promotion. You had no choice. Will Hardy might have been next in line naturally, but he had gone to Utah a month before. He wasn't there. It wasn't an option. You know, what is, where's Ime's responsibility in this? You know, everyone kind of falls on the organization, and I get it. Um, you know, did Ime let the team down? So there's a lot of people you have to look at before you say you need to make major changes. Last night's All-NBA announcement has a significant effect on whether Jalen Brown is a long-term Celtic or not. That is probably the biggest issue in the offseason. Uh, but to me, you've gotten more than you had the right one as he goes into his age 37 year at some point it's not realistic to get what you're getting from al so these are the issues that you know when you're up at the top it's really hard to tweak really hard to stay at the top and try to get better when you're in the top three or four because you got 26 other teams shooting at you from behind so never easy why you got to take advantage of all these opportunities when you when you get them like the one in front of them tonight Sean, appreciate the time as always. Really, really appreciate this. Thanks for doing it. Thanks, Sean. You got it, guys. Anytime. Go Leafs. That was our conversation with Celtics play-by-play voice Sean Grandy. That was recorded a little bit earlier because the Celts and Sixers are underway right now. Boston hoping to avoid elimination and force a Game 7 in that second round series. When we continue on Smith & Jones, we will be joined by an old friend of the show. Of course, a man that is very familiar to basketball fans in Canada and in Toronto specifically. Former head coach of the Raptors, now former head coach of the Pistons as well. Dwayne Casey up next on Smith & Jones. Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast. Download, subscribe, rate, and review with fresh content coming every Thursday on your favorite podcast platform and, of course, right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Happy to be joined now by a member of the Detroit Pistons front office as he stepped down as head coach earlier uh, in this offseason after a reign with the Pistons the last few years. And, of course, that followed his reign as the head coach of the Toronto Raptors, a former coach of the year in the NBA during his time with the Raptors as well. Pleased to welcome into the conversation, Dwayne Casey. Dwayne, great to have you on. And um, I, I, your role has changed with the Pistons now mm -hmm. going into the front office. But I, I want you to, and I don't know if you've had a chance to do this, knowing that you've, you, you've kind of, uh, at least for this part of your career, put the formal mm -hmm. whistle away. Not that you won't be teaching and you, you still won't be looking at video and breaking stuff down with people, but have you had a chance to reflect back of your, on your entire coaching career, right from, you know, the, you know, the, the bench at, at, at Western Kentucky mm -hmm. and, and UK mm -hmm. and all the way up to, you know, uh, being coach of the year in the NBA. Have you had a chance to reflect back and look at stuff and say, man, this was really good or, uh, you know, there's some things that I'm really proud of here on my coaching journey. 
Well, well, Jonesy, you know, I don't know if a coach ever officially, I mean, I I don't know if I use the retire word or, 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 or just more transition, I would say would be the word I would use going into the new role, which I'm excited about uh, to see what it is, but I don't know if I would use, use the uh, uh, retirement word. I don't know if I'll, I'll ever retire away out of, from coaching, you know, maybe transition to another position and and try to help our organization back on top. But it, it gives you a time to reflect when you do make that transition to another role within the organization. Uh, you know, you think back to all the players that you coached, uh, you know, all the way from Western Kentucky, as you said, even when I was a grad assistant at Kentucky, before I went back as a full-time assistant, you know, guys like, Sam Bowie, Melvin Turpin, Dirk Menningfield, you know, uh, Matt, Richard Madison, the master blaster from Memphis, all those guys that you worked with and worked out in college. And then you go to the NBA, you think about all the players in Seattle, Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, Detler Shrimp, uh, Sam Perkins, all those guys that you spent a lot of time with, went to the finals. Uh, unfortunately, like we did in Toronto, we went, everybody at that time, was running into a guy by the name of Michael Jordan. And, you know, you had to get through the Jordan gauntlet, whether it was in the finals or if he was in the East, the conference finals. So, uh, and then, you know, you go to Dallas. You go to, well, go to Minnesota as a head coach and, go, you know, guy with the name of Garnett. Uh, you know, so, and then you go to Dallas. You, you have, you know, you know, all the guys there in Dirk and, and uh, Jason Terry and winning a championship there. And then the great part of uh, my head coaching career was there in Toronto. Um, the young men there, you know, going from 23 games to 59 games. Uh, it was so rewarding. You know, the, you know, Jose Calderon, all the, you know, starting him out, Barbosa, uh, you know, just uh, so many great young players that you come across and end up with DeMar and Kyle and, Fred and Pascal and that group at the end. So uh, those are the first things you think about once you start thinking about your journey and more than anything else, more than the politics, more than the, you know, some of the, the, the hard things that you go through in those situations, you, you just think of the, the growth and the improvement and, and the relationships you have with the players. Dwayne, maybe to that point, as I, as I sit there listening to you, if, mm-hmm. and I, and I say this respectfully, <laughs> If you can remember back to 40-plus years ago, uh, a coaching career uh, that, that spanned 40-plus years, mm-hmm. can you still remember that first time that you had a thought in your brain that, you know what, I'm going to mm-hmm. coach or I want to coach, yeah. and, and what inspired you to be a coach, and was it the same that was still inspiring you even as recently as just a few months ago when you were coaching the Pistons? And did you have that same that same joy and that, that, that same passion for coaching and developing young people, let alone young, let alone young players, that you had 40-plus years ago when it all started? Eric, that is a great question because I, I do remember it. Uh, like it, Well, it started earlier when I was a young kid in high, when, when I was in high school. I coached Little League. I fell in love with managing Little League. 11, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds, I found out at that time I was just a glorified babysitter because we would practice 9 in the morning to probably 3 in the afternoon, and we'd stay there at the field, and guys would bring their lunch and all that. So 
that's when the bug first hit me was when I was in high school. But then when I graduated from Kentucky, I never will forget the conversation. My first job interview after I graduated uh, from the University of Kentucky was with Humana Corporation, which was a hospital care company uh, based in Louisville, Kentucky. And the president and the CEO at that time, uh, Wendell Cherry, was he was a Kentucky grad and wanted me to come and work for him. And my first job offer was to work for that company out in San Diego, California. And basically, I was just going to be a valet, so to speak, for the doctors and moving families into towns and into, you know, into San Diego area when they first got there and whatever they needed. So I never forget driving back from Louisville, Kentucky to Lexington, which is about, you know, close to an hour drive, thinking, is this what I really want to do? Do I really want to get in the hospital business and, and uh, you know, kind of be a, a valet for doctors and that type of thing? So I went back, sit down with Coach Hall in his office and said, Coach, I'm not sure this is what I want to do. He said, what are you talking about? You, this is a heck of a job. You're going to make six, close to six figures right out of college, you know, living in, in San Diego, California. I said, but, but uh, Coach, I, I just don't think that's what I want to do. And he said, well, have you thought about coaching? I think you'd be a heck of a uh, uh, basketball coach. And I said, Coach, I've never thought about that, but let me think about it and I'll get back to you. So that's how I first thought about it, about coaching at that time. And then I got a graduate assistant position, you know, went to grad school there. And, uh, and but that, that was my first thought of coaching. And my first job, Eric, and was to move Sam Bowie in with me. He lived with me that summer. Uh, before the season, before school started, working out, and, is, and I don't even know if it's in the NCAA rules. I really don't care. But, but we were working out and developmental program, and just you know doing passing the ball to him, working on post moves, and at that time the three point shot wasn't as effective, and so we didn't venture out. But soon Sam Bowie would venture out, start moving out, shooting the three, but. Coach Hall would never let him shoot that far out. So, uh, but again, that's that's my first memory of coaching at a high level was that drive by sitting down with Coach Hall uh, and talking about you know getting into college coaching. Case, uh, I, I know that you never think about it this way because you're uh, you're so focused on the actual art and science of coaching and, and making guys better and the bottom line of winning games. And, and mm-hmm. I, you know, it sounded like even back then you were into the developmental part of it before it became a thing, before mm-hmm. it became a big deal right, in right. helping people improve. Right. But do you, do, do you ever step back and say, listen, I, I, like I coached against Michael Jordan. I, I, I coached LeBron James in all-star games and things like that. Like, does, does that gravity ever hit you? when you kind of look at your coaching journey? Well, it, it does. And, and and back to the end, before I get into that, Jonesy, is the last part of Eric's question. And the love and the joy was there. You do, you never enjoy uh, losing. But I, this year I did enjoy working with our young – well, last two or three years, and that's what we've been in here. And I think everybody think I've, I've forgotten how to coach just because we had three – tough years, but we had a mission uh, to have those players, the young players come in. We've had five 
uh, all rookie rookies come through that, which definitely doesn't equal winning in the NBA. So, but I enjoyed every minute of watching those young men grow, watching film with them, uh, seeing them work through their mistakes, uh, learning about the NBA, and uh, you know, uh, I'm going to be on the other side of the fence watching the the end results, but. That was joyful for me. I didn't. I hated the losing. I, I probably the nights after the losses that hurt so much, and you want to walk away from it. But once you get back in the gym and see the faces and see the joy of those young men working every day, that joy for me was still was still there and st- is is still there. So mm-hmm. that's hopefully that answers your question, E, about did I still have the fire and love of the game? And yes, I did. And to your point, Jonesy, I do think about that. I think about all the great players, you know, the the tail end of Magic Johnson's career, you know, just seeing guys like that going against guys like that, Sabonis, Sabonis' dad, you know, mm-hmm. you, you think about players like that, Michael Jordan, uh, game planning for him to beat to play against those guys in the finals, listening to that Run of the Bulls song that comes on before the introduction. I get cold chills just thinking about those. <laughs> you, know, you, you can just still taste it, you know, as far as him running out there, twenty-three from North Carolina, and and uh, trying to get to find a way to beat those guys. Uh, Dennis Rodman uh, going to get, you know game plan against him. So I do think about that. The last years of Kobe. I think there's a picture somewhere there in Toronto there when uh, Kobe's last game in Toronto coming up on the sideline, him saying, hey, coach, you're doing a heck of a job with these young guys. Keep them rolling. You know, and this was kind of when Kobe was uh, on the farewell tour. And yeah. so uh, those those situations I will never forget. Uh, and you do think about, you know, as you transition, and I'm not going to use the word retire, but the transition to the front office and think about guys you coached and guys you game plan and coached against. Uh, throughout their career. Yeah, Case, and, and it's funny because um, it's like being a parent. We're all parents, all of us, and, and it's, uh, I always joke, education, coaching, being a parent, those things are like being in the, like in the mob. Like once you think you're out of it, you're not. Like you're, you're never out of it. So, uh, I, you know, I know exactly, yeah, I know exactly where you're coming from. But I, I, just before we get into some of the you know nuts and bolts of your new job, Dwayne. I, I I want you to reflect back on uh, the championship you won in Dallas because I remember mm-hmm. standing beside you courtside after uh, you know g- game one, heading into game two, mm-hmm. and we were talking, mm-hmm. and the announcement came out about Toronto, and I was mm-hmm. sitting beside, standing beside another national mm-hmm. uh, national broadcaster who was a former player. And he pointed over at you and said, you know who'd be good in Toronto? And I said, who? He said, that, that cat right there. And I said, oh, yeah, he would be. And that, that, for me, that's when it first dawned on me that you might come to Toronto. But when you reflect back on being part of Rick's staff and that whole championship mm-hmm. run, what, what will you remember? What will you take from that, uh, you know, knowing that you were part of a championship team and, and, and a coach right. there as well? Well, again, I learned so much from Rick, as I have all the coaches, George Cog, and he got close to a championship, but you look at his records, our records in the 90s, uh, it's unmatched, and you were just, like you said, we just ran into 
a young, uh, you know, a prime Michael Jordan in in those years, and everybody did. So it kept us from getting a title there. But uh, with George, with Rick in in Dallas, Jonesy, uh, it, I learned so much organization. You know, being you know being persistent and consistent in your approach, uh, and being calm in your approach. Uh, Rick had grown so much, you know, from his years in Detroit. I think he went through with the laser approach where he just wanted to blow everything up in front of him, torch the bridge, and you know, try to swim back across of it. And you know, so I think he learned from that experience in Detroit, where in Dallas he was, you know, more of a politician more polished, so I learned what to do, what not to do in certain situations, not to panic in a lot of situations, just his relationship he had with Dirk and, and Jason Terry and Jason Kidd, who was not a, a, a joy to coach at that time. Jason was a handful, and he'd be the first to tell you that he was a tough guy to coach. And I always remember being the moderator between uh, Rick and Jason because Jason – is one of those guys who, who thought out of the box. He wanted to do things differently. And, uh, you know, and again, he, he, but he was a joy to coach, but he, he did think out of the box. And so, but I learned that the relationship of players, everybody was different. You treat everybody different, but you treat everybody with respect and uh, try to get the best out of them uh, in that way. Uh, and, and just that journey, nobody, everybody counted us out. Nobody gave us a, snowball chance and you know where to to win a championship we were the underdog in each of the each round of the playoffs and uh you know everybody talked about us you know being fired before that because at that time we had a hard time getting past san antonio they were still rolling at the time so uh just the persistence and the grinding mentality that you had to have to get through those years to finally get to the promised land to go against miami uh, game planning against Miami, I'll never forget. Uh, that's when the zone was kind of coming through and starting up. And so we started using the zone throughout the year, which was very effective. I never forget convincing Rick to use the zone. He wasn't a zone guy, and I had just come from Seattle where, you know, working with John Chaney and, and learning the nuances of how he used the zone at Temple. And so we implemented it and, and – kind of uh, murked it up a little bit to, to fit the NBA where you can't stand in the lane for 2.9 uh, seconds. So uh, took took all those notes and really kind of implementing our zone, which uh, for us was a way to protect Dirk Nowinski. You know, he wasn't a great defender. He wasn't a great switch guy. And he, you know, the only thing we could do was either blitz or either go to zone. And that's what we used a lot with him to protect him. And uh, even in the playoffs, team would pick spots into going at him, picking out plays. So we had to kind of move him around on the baseline and make adjustments to uh, hide him defensively, uh, which, you know, uh, but he made up for it on the other end of the floor. So we had to, we had to have him ready to go. But great years, great learning experience. I do remember the night you and I talked that year. I think I interviewed with uh, – uh, Golden State, I never forget that. They flew to Dallas and met me in Dallas to interview for their job. I never forget uh, interviewing with Houston. The owner of Houston flew out, flew down to Dallas. This was during the playoffs, during our run to uh, 
uh, to the finals. And then there was one more. I can't remember. I think it might have been Chicago. I can't remember who else it was. But it was three or four teams I interviewed during that run uh, to the finals. And Rick was gracious enough to to allow me to, to interview. And Mark Cuban uh, allowed me to interview. They didn't have to do that. Uh, so they did. And, and then Toronto was the last interview. It was after the playoffs. And uh, I, I never forget flying in and, and meeting with Brian and Mark Eversley and the excellent front office they had at that time there and, and uh, you know, meeting with Larry and uh, met Larry in, in New York. So uh, so all the, the different meetings that I had and conversations we had were all very positive and uh, it, it was a great experience, great journey, great story uh, of going through that championship season. Dwayne, this is something that I'm sure you're going to have come at you fast and furious as a member of the front office now, but I, I no doubt uh, know that you've experienced it over your years as a as a human being, let alone as a coach and a father and everything else. We were talking earlier in the show with Sean Grandy, the radio voice of the Celtics, and we kind of, well, I say I, but Jonesy, it was we. We got on our soapboxes about today's generation, and we're kind of like the old uh-huh. men screaming at the at the cloud here. The the instant gratification, Dwayne, and, and it spills over into sports so often. Players that don't like their lot, don't like their role, and they maybe try and force their way out. Organizations that mm-hmm. don't think that their team's winning enough, and they get rid of coaches or they mm-hmm. get rid of players, whatever it may be. Right. Fans that don't right. see enough wins or don't see enough championships and they want to bail on their team or they think their team's going nowhere. It's that instant gratification. How did you sustain such a long career and success in different spots? And then how do you think you'll battle some of those demons as a front office member knowing we want to win, we want it now, but knowing that, hey, I've been on the other side and we also still have to practice some of that patience that you've spoken of? No question, Eric, and that is today. That's called the, the cell phone, the information age. You know, there's so much information out there, some right, some wrong, some real, some, some false. Uh, they, you know, the information that you can get by the push of a button doesn't really give you the entire story, sometimes enough to be dangerous. And that's what I, I kind of, one thing that I did throughout my I stayed off the, the Internet, stayed off the Instagram, stayed off Twitter, stayed off of reading the comments section of, of all the stuff. Because you, if you read that as a coach, and and as you mentioned, if I read that as a member of the front office, you'll be sitting with those people in the basement making those comments on those, on those, on those uh, platforms. So you have to stay away from it. I tell the players all the time, don't look at it. I mean, even, at, even now, the difference, you say that things have changed. Even now, the first thing players do is they get on the, the, those phones right after the game. They're sitting in their lockers before the games, reading the stuff. And I, I call it poison. A lot of it is poison. And I do understand the significance of it, the clicks. I understand the, the advertising value of those platforms that you have to have as an organization. I get it. But from a coaching and player standpoint, and I, I really feel like it's poison. So I really advise the players and stayed away from it. So it would keep my head clear. I could think with a clear mind, pure heart, and coach with a pure mind and clear heart uh, from that standpoint. Because, you, you know, if you read that stuff and uh, no matter what you said, it doesn't bother you, you're human. 
and it will bother you. And that has led to the instant gratification, like, you know, Bud getting fired in, in Milwaukee. Here's a guy that won 70% of his game, 70%, you know, and, and still not enough. Uh, and he's won a championship. You know, again, you have Nick there and, in, in, you know, did a good job there in, in Toronto. Uh, fans want, want his head. You have some who want it, who some who don't. Uh, fans here, first thing they, you know, they want a, a rebuild. We, and organizationally, we went through a rebuild. We took it down to the nub, to the nub, to the studs. Uh, and, and again, whether it's through injuries or whatever the situation was, we started from scratch. And you know, then the very after the very first year, you know, they wanted to win a championship. So there's no right, wrong way of of doing it or building it. They're going to be critics. Uh, and my thing is, if you start listening to them, you'll be sitting with them. And uh, so you have to have a a, a tough constitution, uh, kind of a, a selective de- uh, hearing, you know, in certain things, whether it's fans yelling from the stands or, you know, on the radio or whatever it is, and which I don't listen to the talk shows either. So those things, you know, you have to kind of put to the side as, as a coach, as a leader, uh, and I'm sure in your business as as on cast on air stars and things like that, you have to be selective, or it does affect your opinion and the way you do business. So uh, there's a good place for the for those platforms and and uh, for advertising to make money, those type of things. But if you're a leader, you better be leery of those those uh, platforms and definitely the the uh, opinions of those people who who are on there because it can cloud your thinking, cloud your performance, and uh, make you make decisions or, or influence you to make decisions that are not, not good for you. Dwayne, last one for me before we go. Mm-hmm. Um, you are now in the process as a front office guy of interviewing coaching candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, you right. know, you, you have a great line. I never forget it. You always have a great line. You always say, be careful when the rabbit gets the gun. So um, there, there you are on the other side now. You're the one deciding who gets to come in or help to decide who gets to come in and sits on that bench and makes those decisions and, you know, has a big part of the development of these players. Um, what's it like for you? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a certain amount of empathy knowing that that person is sitting on the other side and, and – is probably sweating and trying to come up with answers on the spot and, 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 you know, justifying their own philosophy. Um, how does that impact you when you're going through interviews from the other side, when you're the ones asking the question and making those decisions? Well, one thing I've done, Jones, is really stayed in the background, stayed kind of, you know, the quiet, quiet guy, you know, and, and not really, really uh, uh, Troy and Arn really, Handling the questions, our our team uh, uh, psychologists really handling the questions. Just and my role is more than anything else is listening, uh, not really being a, a participant in in the whole selection process, but just listening. And uh, like you said, it's a difficult enough as it is, uh, not you know to for a coach to come in, and now you have the former coach you know, sitting, sitting there. And, and so it's very difficult. So just really careful not to, to put my foot in the middle of, 
of everything and let Troy and who who has done a magnificent job here of of select of the interview process, the selection process, the narrowing down process. Uh, and uh, and Tom uh, Tom Gore is our owner. He's a people person. Uh, he knows people. That's his kind of his gift in all of his business. That's what's made him a multi multi billionaire. Uh, and so though you know I can let those guys and and uh, have have that. But again, I, I've been through it numerous times. I I t- you know talk to Brenda all the time. I think I've interviewed probably with half the league over that. <laughs> over that 44 years, whether it's before that first head coaching job or, or before I went to for Minnesota, and then when it, before I went to Toronto. So, um, again, it's it's a tough process. You can only em- have uh, empathy for those guys that are going through and ladies that are going through it. Uh, and and again, I'm glad to see those people that are involved, you know, and again, my thing too in the position I am now is even helping the assistant coaches that I had, Jonesy. Uh, I've got, you know, Brittany Donaldson just got a position with uh, uh, Atlanta and really, really happy to see that. So pushing guys like that, pushing guys like DJ Baker, who was started out as a video uh, intern there in, in Toronto now, Coached the G League team. Now he's ready to go in the front of the bench. Just helping those guys get interviews, setting them up for different positions. Going to really highly recommend them to the coach we choose here. Uh, to you know some of the people that were here, trying to help them stay on the bus, employed, uh, and uh, so that's kind of my in, in moving to the transition to the role I have now. That's kind of my my uh, charge for myself is to try to help. As many young coaches that I've coached, coached with, that's worked for me to move on and, and to, to move up into this great profession. Dwayne, we uh, we wish you all the best, uh, as always, and really appreciate your time. You've always been gracious with us, and uh, certainly we hope to keep in touch and uh, look forward to seeing what's next for, for Detroit because uh, I think the future is very bright for the Pistons, and uh, thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate it, Ian. I, I I totally agree. I hope I get a speaker on that. Uh, you know, with our cap room, you know, we've taken our hits, we've taken our bruises and bumps over the years, and we got we having a chance next week to uh, to get a top three pick, top four. You know, can't drop any lower than five. So we we're going to get another top player, but and again, but the cap room that we have going into the summer is going to be a huge, huge plus for us and. All those decisions are going to be big decisions for our organization, and and I'm excited to to give what little input that I can give to it, and be a part of it. Thanks very much, Dwayne. Oh, thank you, right, thank case. you, Jonesy. That was former head coach of the Toronto Raptors and former head coach of the Detroit Pistons, now working in Detroit's front office, Dwayne Casey. That's going to do it, folks. Thanks again to Dwayne Casey and of course Sean Grandy for joining us. Thanks to producer Austin Mackey as well for Paul Jones. I'm Eric Smith. Fresh content on Smith & Jones every Thursday on your favorite podcast platform and right here on Sportsnet 590.